Podcast. So my next artist was originally part of a group, and he was in a group with his brother. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't always go well with family, and they suffered a, a breakup. But this is, of course, you know, John Fogarty, because he's the one I'm going to focus on, John Fogarty and sure. Credence Clearwater Revival, and the song is Looking Out My Back Door. And this came out in 1970. And at this point, uh, you know, CCR was one of the more prolific hit makers of their era. I have their, I have Creedence Clearwater Revival's greatest hits. And it's, you know, it's a who's who of 60s and 70s early pop music. Right. You know, they're all over the charts. As a little kid, once again, one of those compilation albums, I remember them advertising this on television. Sure. Yeah, and that's kind of when I got exposed to, to CCR. Credence, Clearwater Revival. Yeah. You remember, folks, where they would scroll the names of the songs uh-huh. on the screen, and then they would they would highlight the song that was playing? Or they would, you know, have the picture of the couple sitting by the fireplace with a glass of wine. <laughs> I don't know to this song. I don't think so. Yeah. No. But, you know, I talk about, you know, kind of the, the, the bitter rivalry between John and his brother Tom, that, you know, it, CCR in many ways was kind of a short-lived, you know, they, they were super extremely popular and then they, they were done. Gone. Yeah. And, you know, they, you know, they, they, there was front lawsuits between one another and they're disputing and, and, you know, the, you would have these people a little older than us that would always talk about CCR and how, mm-hmm. how great they were. And yeah, I'd, I'd occasionally hear their songs played. And, uh, you know, I remember, um, the, in, the movie The Twilight Zone, when okay. Dan Aykroyd's character is in the car and he's singing along to the Midnight Special. Okay. And I remember thinking of the song and like, oh yeah, that's a CCR song. Okay. Yeah. And and so I was aware of them. But then in, um, in 1984, I remember I was watching MTV and they, as you remember, they would do these world premiere videos back mm-hmm. in 1984. And I remember them making a big deal when they, were, when they premiered this video. Yes. Absolutely. And you can kind of see it where you're following the, the cord. The cable. Yep. Yeah. Following the, 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 the cord and of you, the amp. You don't know what it is at first. Right. Oh, it's like this this uncut scene just going through the leaves, following what turns out to be an amplifier cord. Yeah. Yep. As you eventually, at the end of the song, get to John Fogarty by himself standing there playing a guitar into an amplifier. And that's kind of the imagery that he wanted everybody to remember is that it's just him now, and that's why he's there by himself. This this uh, was a huge hit. This album. I think this was number one. I think this was a number one single. This this, this album did extremely well. I think it had three huge yeah. songs on it. And then what does Tom do? Sues his brother. Why? Because he sounded too much like himself. <laughs> it sounded too much like Creedence Clearwater well, Revival. And the, the thing is, is John Fogarty wrote the songs in in CCR. Yeah. So when he's when his brother sues him, he sues him because he sounded like himself. Yeah. Yep. 
So, I mean, and that's, I think that was John's argument. John did win in court. He did, yeah. But it's like, how... I'm the writer. How I, It's like, I'm never supposed to write again? Well, wasn't that part of the reason why it took him so long to come out with his yeah, solo album? Yeah, I think it was. Because yeah. of all the legal battles. So, you know, th- this this is somebody that had a lot of you know credibility with an older crowd. And, you know, they were people that just couldn't wait for CCR to come back again. Yeah. And then here it was. And surprisingly, it was something that was poppy something that a younger generation that wasn't super familiar with John Fogarty kind of, you know, latched on to. But this this does fit in with the CCR sound. Oh, completely. I mean, this could have been a CCR album. Now, Colorado I didn't play the song Centerfield. Okay. Which I, 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 I like even more. Yeah. But this was the big hit, so that's why I played it. This was the first one. This it was, was the one comeback. that reintroduced him to yeah. everybody. Yeah. Now, Centerfield doesn't really sound to me like a CCR song. No. No. And, you know, I guess you could argue and say that for John Fogarty, the solo act, that Centerfield is his signature song. Yeah, it, it, it's a great song. Could have played that, but I decided to go back to when I really was first exposed to John Fogarty, not just CCR. Okay. Next artist um, on the list is somebody that is on the list twice, but he's performing with two different people. All right, so he's he's uh, performing here, and let me. Of course, this is Bill Medley mm-hmm. singing in the Righteous Brothers. Yeah. And when I heard this song as a kid, um, I knew the Hollow News version better than what I knew this yeah. version. Yeah, I, I think the first time I could ever say I really even heard. I knew Bill Medley's solo stuff before I really knew what the Righteous Brothers was. Right. Probably Ghost would be the first time I heard Unchained, Unchained Melody. Melody. Yeah. And but that's not him saying. No. That no. But you know that, that the Righteous Brothers name. Sure. Of course. Um, what's the song they came out with in the seventies? Was it Rock and Roll Heaven or something like that? Maybe. Oh yeah. Might have to go out with that song. Yeah. But he. So this was 1965, and you know this is all-time classic. I remember, um, you know, an episode of Cheers where that was uh, Rebecca's like the the song that would always make her melt, and sure. and she didn't want word getting out. And I, and I remember at the time just kind of being, I would say, a little confused because I like the Hollow Notes song so much more. Well, you know, and I guess I should knock myself on the head because we just talked about it in the episode of Top Gun. Where that that's played, this song's played at the end of the movie. That'd be 1986. It so. it, it is, and I, I remember, you know, being aware of it and hearing it, and that kind of was a little bit of a bump. So when when the that song is played, you know, in the the famous bar scene, um, you know, where uh, where Maverick goes up and he, he sings to Charlie the first time that he meets her, and you know, plays that. It, I think that kind of helped revive. Bill Medley's career a little bit. It kind of probably got him back on the, on the radar. So that was you know 1986, and then in 1987, Bill Medley comes out with one of the biggest songs of all time. Certainly one of the big best uh, biggest movie songs of all time. Right. And this is Jennifer Warren's 
Yeah, and of course, with Righteous Brothers, is with Bobby, ha- Bobby Hatfield, right. right? So it's not by, by himself, but here he is with, um, as you say, with Jen- Jennifer Warrens. Another kind of a duet, and he's kind of a master at this. And I remember thinking, why would they have picked him initially? But as the years have gone on, I'm like, I, I can't think of another voice. Oh, you're absolutely right. I couldn't imagine anybody else singing the song with with Jennifer Warrens. And, you know, she had the opportunity and the privilege to a movie that came out in 1982 called An Officer and a Gentleman. Mm-hmm. And she sang the theme song with Joe Cocker. Sure. Another, you know, veteran from the 1960s with Love Lift Us Up, Where We Belong. Sure. Um, that's a great, great pair of songs yeah. with, with two all-time great singers, but... I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I, I could not imagine anybody else singing his, his parts in this song. And it's 22 years later. And it, was it, this was written by uh, Frankie Previn, uh, the former lead singer Frankie the Knockouts. Yeah. Uh, where he, it, from what I understand, at the end of the movie, they just couldn't find the right song to close out the, the famous dance scene. You know, nobody puts baby in a corner. And you know Johnny and, and Baby go out and they, and they dance, and they you know they they just it's like this movie's gonna die. We, we we don't have anything. And then so Frankie, he writes the lyrics to the song, he he sings it. So he sings the demo. Mm-hmm. So what what the actors heard during the filming was Frankie's voice. Okay. Now when they actually went back and they re-recorded it and put Bill Medley on it, and I, it's probably better with Bill. Sure. But. It's it is interesting that you know sometimes in movies they will have people out there performing and the actual song is, that you hear is not what they heard at the time. Yeah, that happens a lot more than yeah. you think. And but in this case, you really did hear this song just with Frankie's voice. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. So you know, Bill Medley, somebody that had totally dropped off my radar, if he ever was on my radar. Yeah. Um, but you know, suddenly in 1987, he has a, a huge comeback. There's somebody else who. Um, you know, we talk about music coming out of our sister Lori's room that I remember her having this album. Sean Cassidy? And no. Oh yeah. This is the great Steve Netherman. Could you imagine, you know, one of his best friends in school was Boz Skaggs? He was in the original version of Steve Miller Band. Yeah, and they decided to go their separate ways. Could you imagine what could have been had they decided to stay together? That would have been pretty cool. That would have been pretty cool. But, you know, Steve Miller was incredibly popular and this came out in 1977 and that was probably at the height of his career I mean he had he had a nice run throughout the 70s mm-hmm. and you know there's you know three about three or four big hits off of this album and I think this one might have been been the biggest one that he had so what do you what do you remember most about Steve Miller as as a performer in the 70s my memory is that he never was on television like the only time anybody could ever see Steve Miller would be live in concert. He was notorious for being off the grid 
on TV. He wouldn't do talk shows. He wouldn't okay. perform on American Bandstand or the Midnight Special. He didn't do anything like that. If you're going to see Steve Miller, it had to be in concert. And it, it, that was like no other another singer or, or act of, of its time. That's true. That's true. And maybe that added to the mystique a little bit. I, I remember the, you know this album being advertised on television. And I remember the song Swingtown. Yeah. Which was, I think, the name of the album. Yeah. And that there was a, a commercial like you know, talking about the number one album, Swingtown. And I used to enjoy that they would do that back then. They would actually run ads for albums and, yeah. and promote the, the record companies would, would actually go out and promote their product. Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. But, you know, Steve Miller was so incredibly talented. You know, he was known as Stevie Guitar, Guitar Miller. And, you know, we, um, I think he was his Les Paul's godson, I think, is, is kind of the story. Okay. How, how that goes. And, but, you know, just a hit maker. And then, you know, he comes out with that, as often happens. You get to the top of the mountain, and then you kind of you, you disappear. And Steve Miller was an afterthought. So, in my mind, in 19, let's see, are we in 82? Mm-hmm. 82, 1982, Steve Miller is somebody that I remember hearing coming from my sister's room. Okay, and that's 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 far as I, I go with it. I mean, right. I'm not seeking out Steve Miller. I'm not going to the record store and looking to buy anything. But then Steve Miller, 1982, releases this song, which is one of my all-time favorite songs. I love this. song. Oh yeah, especially for 1982. Yeah, no doubt. This was all my mixtape. It was on your mixtape, Scott. <laughs> Scott, for those of you who don't know, made the greatest mixtape <laughs> in history. That probably is lost. Oh, it's gone, yeah. It's, it's gone. Although, I, I was able to find all the songs and put them on a CD, so it's labeled 1982. <laughs> so, but, but you do have all the songs, like, like Going to a Go-Go? Uh-huh. And, oh, I have them all. Scott's mixtape was so famous that, let's see, you would have been, hold on, you you were probably Ele- 11? 11, yeah. That, that like, all of, of our sister's older friends wanted Scott to dub copies of his mixtape well what they wanted was they wanted they always wanted to borrow it so they could go dub it so they could go listen to oh, it because remember we, were, we would they would take like we'd take like weekend trips to the beach and stuff like yeah. with the whole group and they would always say hey scott can we borrow that tape from you and i'd be like <laughs> no but i'll play it for you, you so i can be alone so i can hang out with the older kids yeah so they were you know they were you know, senior, junior, seniors in high yeah, school. Yeah, so it was at, at our church's youth group, and then so you know we would tag along, go to the beach, and various things. And, oh, that was pretty tricky there, Scott. It's like, yeah. oh no, you're, you're going to take it and leave me. Nope, you're going to. Yeah, I'll never <laughs> see it back. Right, because I was guarding that thing you know, with my life. So, right. or they wouldn't let you come along and right. you know hang out with the older kids. So, so. I said, I said, no, I won't let you borrow it, but I'll play it for you. Now, Steve Miller never had a hit after this. And if you rem- do, you remember the music video? Oh, absolutely. When yeah. they when they show him, remember how I said he he totally avoided mm-hmm. any kind of photography, any kind of. Do you remember how they had his face or his eyes blacked out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I that always kind of stood out all to right. me in that, in that video. Never thought about that. But, anyway, you were saying. But no, was, I mean the, you know, the video was all about magic, and it's it's all abracadabra. It it's. I always found it just be such a fun song. And it, uh, it, you know, as Scott said, it was it was the centerpiece of his mixtape. I mean, or what what else would have been on that mixtape? Um, well, you mentioned "Going to a Go Go." Uh, Don't you want me? By the Human League was on that. Um, what else was on? Hurt so good was on that. And uh, what was the Donna Summer song? Um, Finger on the trigger. Uh, not she works hard for the money. Nope. Oh, okay. Finger on the trigger. <laughs> I had. 
uh, Let oh, yeah, It Whip. I remember that song. Let It Whip was uh, on that. The Daz Band. Yeah. Yeah. So it was chock full of... It was chock full of goodies. But yeah. All right, but uh, staying with this list, we're going to move on to a, a solo artist who started out with a bunch of different groups, and he was kind of this prodigy. This, this young singer that all these top English musicians wanted to play with. And of course, I'm talking Steve Winwood. Mm-hmm. And so this is in 1969 when he is in the band Blind Faith. Okay. And this is the band that has Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker in the band. And yeah. It, and you literally, you could argue and say you've got three of the best musicians, rock musicians at their, at their place in this set. Mm-hmm. Ginger Baker, drums, Clapton, and guitar, and Winwood at the keyboards. Yeah, and Winwood's super young. I mean, yeah, he might even still be a teenager at this time. I think time. he's 19. Yeah. And, you know, the I don't know if he sounds like it in this song, but, you know, they, they would always say that he kind of sounded like Ray Charles. It was kind of like what a lot of people said, you know, coming up, he was like a, a young Ray Charles. I, I, I never really I heard never, that in no, his voice. No, I never, never thought that. I don't that. know well, that's why they said. No. I don't know if it's because he played the keyboards. But here you have an artist that he, he goes from here. Uh, so this is Blind Faith. He, he goes into traffic. You know, he's, he's, he's this much, this highly sought after studio musician. He's just so highly regarded. And he's, you know, not somebody that necessarily is going to trans over, transition over and have a solo career, especially in the 80s. No, because he, and he even mentioned that he never really thought of himself as a solo artist. Like he almost had to be convinced to do it. That he, he always felt okay. I'm going to be a musician. I'm a musician's in a band, and that's was always his his mindset. Right. Starting back to when he was 16 and had to get you know his parents write permission for him so he could go tour with Spencer Spencer Davis. Yeah, that's right. He was in Spencer Davis group. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but and then in around 1980. He comes out with a song called See a Chance, Mm -hmm. right? And I really liked it. And it was a hit. I I think it went like number seven on the charts. But I'm not going to play that song. I'm going to play what I think is is the song that really kind of brought his career to where it it became, he became a big star in the 1980s. Yeah. In in this this version of Steve Winwood, I was on the entire ride. I really, really liked his mid to late 80s stuff. Right. No doubt. I like his voice better here than when he's with Blind Faith. I mean, he's mature. He's an adult now. He knows what his voice is. And this is, uh, was it 1986? And, yeah, 86. This is, it's a pretty deep song for having such a upbeat tempo to it. If, if you actually listen to the words. Well, if you're going to have a hit in 1986, it better have some type of up, up-tempo beat like it's what true. you're hearing right now. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, he's singing about higher love and, um, you know, it, it's, it, he, he, they're very thoughtful lyrics, yeah. uh, you know, surprisingly. I, but he was always known for <laughs> being supremely talented. And at this point, I think, I think he has a little bit more confidence where he... It's okay in his own skin where he can go out there by himself. Mm-hmm. And once again, a, a, a music video that kind of reminded me of Robert Palmer's videos. It was stylish. Okay. It was kind of, you know, just the, there was money put into it. It was, 
there was some production value put into it and he just he came across more as a front man sure yeah even though the majority of the video has him doing what he does which is Play stand behind the keyboard right yeah but it in the way that they shot the video they blacked out everything around him so he's standing on the screen alone so it gives him the image that he's a front man right so moving on uh on my list to the next artist now here's one that I can almost guarantee you, Scott, you did not consider for your list. Okay. <laughs> okay. This would be Rise, right? It is Rise by Herb Albert. I have this on vinyl. Oh, you should. This is, this to me epitomizes 1979. It just has that sound, that little kind of post disco sound a little bit. Yeah, and this was when the trumpet was kind of cool again because you had Chuck Mangione and, did. and Herb Alpert. Yeah. And this song went to number one. It, yeah. They famously had Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Mm-hmm. Kind of stepped out of music to get into the executive side of records. He was he was the A in A&M music. Could a song like this make it today? Where it's just a trumpet, or where the, the trumpeter is the star. Because you would have, like, Grover Washington Jr. was also I would someone. say yes. It, you know, if, if a song is good enough, because there have been artists throughout the years that have been able to break through. I mean, Kenny G was huge in oh, the that's 90s. True. Okay. Uh, there was a guy named Dave Koz. He had a hit song in the late 90s that was just him playing the saxophone. It was John Tash. There was John Tesh. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was very popular. Well, I mean, the guy's skilled. I mean, and he was playing keyboards. Amy but, saw him know. in concert. So, okay. Yeah. I I really liked this song when it came out. I mean, I was like 10, 11 years old when I heard it. And it, it kind of had that very similar thing to like Sir Duke, which I really liked. Where okay. I, you know, kind of in that same, maybe three years earlier. Uh, you know, as as we look back and listen back now as, as adults, I, I think, listen to that song and, and i think it like drips pure sex but <laughs> much different than how i would have looked at it as a kid right and i think if i remember correctly uh that it was featured prominently on the soap opera general's Hos- general hospital okay i think they kind of incorporated that in every so there often you go. And, and so that kind of helped add to his popularity so you know he had herb albert who had you know three uh, stages in his career in the 1960s as scott said he's with the tijuana brass hugely popular you know, kind of goes away for a while, comes back late 70s, has that one hit, and then he disappears once again, mm-hmm. right? And But then in 1987, we get this release from Mr. Alpert. Oh, and they're singing in this one, folks. I'm sure you remember. Yes. And it, very shortly after this is when Kenny G comes out with Songbird. Okay. So this this kind of he kind of jump started what ended up being the beginning of a really nice career for Kenny G. Of course, eventually we're gonna hear Janet Jackson, Jackson start to sing. And I remember this being on the radio. Sure. I, I don't remember seeing the video a lot. I mean, I don't know if you do, but I don't think I, I ever saw it. I went back and I watched it on YouTube. 
But at the time, I just remember hearing it on pop radio. Mm-hmm. It would have been something that would have been played at the dance club. Rick's place. That's right, Rick's place. And Janet Jackson was extremely popular at this time. Sure, she was at the height of, of control. Had, mm-hmm. had kind of, she was in between. Yeah. Uh, control and Rhythm Nation 1814. So, or as I said in the previous episode, 1812. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Right. Many times actually. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I went back and heard that. I'm like, ooh. It was Janet Jackson, not James Madison. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that's that's the thing, the way we do this podcast, um, folks, is, you know, Scott and I, we don't really edit a whole lot. No, and, no. <laughs> we don't go back and change things, and so we make a mistake. Um, you know, Richard Foster stays Richard Foster. Hey, folks, people aren't paying us, so <laughs> this is all done for free. Yeah. You know, we, we're glad to provide this service. But, you know, this is a song that, you know, once again, got, got a lot of airplay, got played heavily. But like most things in the 1980s, yeah, after like... No, four 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 months or so it was gone mm-hmm. but you know kind of amazing you know for Herb, Herb Albert how how do you have such a successful career as an artist and as an executive yeah I yeah, mean truly real... amazing and I I still uh, like to listen to uh, some of his old Tijuana Brass albums I have one on vinyl so. I have a couple yeah yeah so gonna go to somebody else here who uh, was big in the 70s big in the 60s part of a duo we talked about Simon and Garfunkel on a previous episode, you know, with his partner Art Gar- Garfunkel, but this is Paul Simon, and this is, uh, you know, one of his last hits of the '70s called "Slip Sliding Away." Slip sliding and this was 1977. It seems like there's a theme. There was a lot of music that I kind of was gravitating towards in like '77. Well, that was right at the point where the singer-songwriter was. You know, we talk about the industry pushing people to the side. 1977, Disco and Saturday Night Fever is the hot trend of the time. So the singer-songwriters are getting pushed to the side. So that's probably like, you know, Paul Simon's kind of last hurrah. Paul Simon, Jackson Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a little Cat Stevens. I mean, a lot of those guys that were so big in, in like 1974, 1975, even 1976... You know, in, in a year or two, it's like, they're gone. Well, you, you know, I talked about how the Steve Miller Band album was advertised on television. You, as an artist, you needed back then to have someone promote you. Right. And if the record companies decided they were going to go in a completely different direction and make Disco Duck. and Which they did. Which they did. And, you know, and your rock bands like Kiss are going to go disco. Everything, everything's being put in disco. I, I could never hear or see Paul Simon doing a disco song but who would have thought kiss would have done it yeah that's true i don't know i would have thought rod stewart would have done it yeah and he did so i guess you know it is possible but paul uh simon did not and then he kind of slips slides away and goes away for a while uh, and, uh, and i know how about it. that yeah. i got that so and then he, he disappears and he's out of my mind i don't think about him at okay. all and then 1986 he comes out with a landmark album called graceland Why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger. Dogs in 
so of course that's uh, Call Me Out, or You Can Call Me Out, and it, it's uh, one of the most famous videos from the MTV era where it's Paul Simon and Chevy Chase performing together. Yep. Or, you know, Chevy's the one that's lip syncing to the song and Paul's just sitting there, <laughs> right. which, which is kind of funny. And, you know, Paul Simon was good friends with Lauren Michael okay. from SNL and had many, many appearances on Saturday Night Live, particularly in the 1970s when he was kind of at the height of his fame. So to, to bring back somebody like Chevy Chase, and I think Lauren Michaels actually had something to do with the production of this video. So he's kind of bringing the, game, you know, bringing the band back together. And, but credit him for coming up with something so unique. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the African uh, musicians that he brought in to make Graceland just created a sound unlike anything else that was going on in North America, at least at the time. Right. It it was it was a seismic shift. You know, we we mentioned already about you know Wink Runge hits, how it changed everything. This didn't change everything, but it was just such a different sound. Yeah. You know, I, I think you started to see some other artists. Then they started incorporating some of the African sounds. Absolutely. And this album really, again, you know how I mentioned that. Artists can be considered good and great, and this turned Paul Simon into a legend, in my opinion, as, as a solo artist. Right, and, and another another artist who had a, a, an incredible career as part of Simon and Garfunkel, you know, in the 60s. Then he has a, a, one of the biggest careers as a solo artist in the 70s. Mm-hmm. He's gone for nine years, just yeah. disappears. And then, you know, literally one day I'm watching MTV and this video appears. And it, it was, you know, then he, he had a, a very strong run after that. Uh, now, uh, my, my next artist uh, was, is, is a band that is, is huge in the 70s. And, and I'm kind of playing this one in honor of my brother. He mentioned in one of our last, I think in our last podcast, maybe two ago, that he's going to go see this band Aerosmith in concert. So this is Aerosmith in 1979. Yeah. Doing their version of the Beatles Come Together, yeah. which was in the uh, Sgt. Pepper movie. That's correct, yeah. And the, and the Sgt. Pepper movie, probably the reason people don't remember it is because I don't think anybody saw it. Well, there are clips on YouTube. I have gone back and watched it, and I've watched this this scene where Aerosmith's in there, and they are as stoned as you're... I mean, they're not even hiding it. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing that a movie like that could even be made. Yeah. Yeah, somebody. Uh, it, it was so poorly done. It, it was, and there's you know Peter Frampton is one of the stars yeah. of the movie. And I mean, it, it ditched a lot of careers. Yeah, yeah, it did. It, it was it was bad, and but you know out of that movie, there was this song, and the yeah. song was a hit. The song's good. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I, I know the Beatle purists aren't going to like me to say this. I prefer this version. Yes, I, I, I think this particular version is is actually better than the original. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a band at this point which is in decline. They are not getting along at this point. They they are on there's a you know there's they're known as the druggiest of all drug bands out there. And they are they're fighting in house, they're they're all in bad shape. And this is this is the end. You know, this is the end of the seventies and in many ways it looks like it's the end of their career. Mm-hmm. I mean they were one of the biggest hard rock bands of the nineteen seventies. Yeah. Yeah, you know, definitely. You, you know, your Sweet Emotion, you have your Walk This Way. You know, they had big hits, big albums, Toys in the Attic, just, you know, one of the all-time biggest bands. After this, you know, Joe Perry leaves, 
and the band looks like it's done forever. Yeah, and and Steven Tyler keeps the name alive. They did try and come, you know, keep keep some songs out there in the early '80s, but they were very forgettable albums. They were. I mean, there might have been a moment here or there, but for the most part, it wasn't Aerosmith. They they went from, you know, headlining like major shows to they probably were having a difficult time getting booked at the Holiday Inn. Yeah. And then so finally, then after after at least one failed comeback, they uh, they they did this this album called Done with Mirrors, and I'm not gonna play a song from that because it wasn't a big hit. And mm-hmm. they had this 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 brilliant idea of putting everything on the album backwards so that you had to hold <laughs> it up to a mirror oh go find a copy it's like everything like on the back you know where they would put like the the songs yeah. and who plays it it's backwards okay it's done with mirrors hold it up to a mirror oh, oh yeah, yeah what a great idea great. and so it it doesn't go anywhere i mean it's got you know moderate little hit let the music do the talking it's you know it's okay but it's it's not a, it's not a hit at all looks like their career is going in the toilet um, for, for their sake, uh, fortunately, Rick Rubin decided he was going to get a hold of uh, Walk This Way and have Run DMC record it. I'm not going to play that version. Okay. Um, because it's more of a Run DMC song. I mean, that's a song that was on, on Run, Raising Hell, Run mm-hmm. DMC's album. So I, I don't really, I mean, to me, the guys in Aris, but they're just kind of singing back up. That's not really their song. But they then come out with an album after that called Permanent Vacation. Yes, they did. Which was huge. I didn't play Dude Looks Like a Lady. Because this was the biggest hit off the album. It was, yeah. My favorite was probably Ragdoll. I really liked that one. But man, this was the summer of 1988 for me. Which is amazing because the album came out in 87. It did. And it and this was the when the last singles released. Yeah, it was. Um, but that's how much staying power it had that they could just keep releasing song after song, and they were popular. We, Sean and I used to work at a water slide called the Water Buggy Water Slide, and those select veterans of you know that we were, we got to work at night after hours after the slide closed down because we had a miniature golf course, and you were the only person there. So you had nothing but you and a radio, and you're in this shed shack. <laughs> that you were taking money from people, and I'll tell you how much around the golf cost. How much? One dollar. That's right. One dollar. <laughs> and you know what? It was probably only worth a dollar. <laughs> it's not the best miniature golf course in the world. So they would stick somebody like Scott or me in this shed, just out in the middle of nowhere, where anyone, if they wanted to come steal the cash, they could have just gone and hit us over the head. We could have disappeared for hours, <laughs> and nobody would have known it. We were off the off the main road. It was. I can't believe it paid them to pay us to be there. Uh, um, they were thrilled because I got like 40 or 50 customers the one night. Ah, so they made bucks. like 50, 40 bucks. And <laughs> well, they probably paid you three. I didn't even make three bucks an hour. I think I was like 285. Right. But I'm saying for the amount of time yeah. you probably were there, you know, you didn't make that much. But, <laughs> but uh, so anyways, this was a song that you would hear play this, there? This song... Uh, FM 97 used to do the top 10 at 10 and it was all request so they would start at 10 o'clock so the the miniature golf course would be open until 10 we would close it at 10 and so by I'm closing everything up 
and they're they're playing this. And that summer of 1988, this song was on every night, mm-hmm. and I'm talking every night. This like "Sweet Child of Mine" was these these songs all kind of hit at the same time. Yeah, and this was this was like the soundtrack to my summer before my senior year. But you don't hear this song a lot anymore. No, you don't. Sweet Child of Mine, you hear it all the time. Right. And this was, and you correctly pointed out, this is, I think, as big a hit as Sweet Child of Mine. Oh, absolutely. And when it came out, it was. I think before Never Want to Lose a Thing, I don't, I forget the name of the song for Aerosmith in the 90s, that was like their biggest hit. Prior to that, this was their, their biggest hit. I think this charted at number three. I don't think it went to number one. Okay. It may have, but it was, I mean, it's, it's top, it's top three regardless. Right. And I, I'm not really sure why sometimes certain songs remain. Yeah, why the other ones get forgotten. And I always like this song. Right. You know, it, power ballads are something that at the end of the 80s, every rock band was doing. Yes. And there were more bad ones than good ones. This was one of the good ones. This was one of the good ones because it is a good song. And mm-hmm. it's not like it's trying to fit a formula. And I don't... I. That you mentioned that it was a power ballad, I honestly couldn't have said I thought of it as a power ballad I, when it came I out. Have, I don't know that we even classified them as power ballads back then. Well, yeah, you know, that's true. it's it was just a good song. It was just right. the it was the next song released off a of permanent vacation. Sure, I mean that's kind of all it was, and um, hugely successful. And you know that whole album really led to Aerosmith coming back and really never leaving. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of amazing that they had this. This rebirth in 1987 with the Permanent Vacation album, and you know, with that being the biggest hit, and they it's they've continued it all the way up to 2023, where you're going to go see them. And where are you seeing them at? Um, there I'm sitting in Philly at, at Wells Fargo. At the well, so they're still at the Wells Fargo Center. Yeah. So still a major arena act, all these years later. So you know, pretty amazing. So as we're getting towards the end of my list, you know, I have two more artists here that. Um, would it be uh, Rick Springfield or the Hooters? Because I'm seeing them <laughs> at the Hollywood Casino in Granville in August. No, but in my, the artist I'm going to play right now is somebody that I, I definitely would love to see. Oh, yeah. He's on my Mount Rushmore. Once again, that year, 1977. 1977, it seems like this style of music stopped, as Scott pointed out. Could you imagine if... Clapton came out with the disco song. <laughs> Could you imagine? No. Of course, this is the song Cocaine by Eric Clapton. Unfortunately, Eric probably was doing a little too much cocaine. Oh, I'm sure he was Because I think that's what causes him to disappear for a while. I, I do know he goes to rehab. Oh, more times than you care to shake a stick at. Yeah. For a song that isn't super, would not have been very... Uh, Accepted and approachable in 1977. It's hard to believe this is such a big hit. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's one of his most most requested songs that he'll do in concert. But it is the last hit that he had of the 1970s. Okay. Yeah, no disco for Clapton. Yeah. Good thing. <laughs> yeah, probably at the time, you know, he probably could have used the money. You know what? He never had an issue with money because he never spent money. Here's here's a story about Clapton. Um, that his first business manager used to give him like he he had no concept of money. Like right. they would always buy things for him. Yeah. His whole thing is when he started making money, his first manager 
would take 200 pounds, roll it up in a brown paper bag, and hand it to him every week. And that was his pay. Mm-hmm. You know, like pocket money. He would have squandered all of it. Yes, he would have. He, he was fortunate enough to have smart business people handling his finances. You know, it started out as a manager, Robert Stigwood, who managed the BGs, ended up managing Clapton as well. He carried on that same tradition where Clapton would get this brown lunch bag <laughs> that had 200, 200 pounds or $200 cash. That was, and they would give it. And they said, you know, they would go visit him at his house and there'd be a hundred of them in the corner. He would never spend his money. Right. You know, he, he bought things, but he would, other people would always buy it for him through his name. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I, I wasn't aware of that story. I, I was watching a documentary and one of the guys from Derek and the Dominoes said, you know, is when Clapton was, I think he was trying to beat heroin at the time. And he's, he was, he's locked in his house and no one has seen him for a while. And basically he went over to see if he could try to get him out of the house. Clapton had no idea that Derek and the Dominoes album became big. Mm-hmm. He, you know, there's no internet. He's, he's locked in a house in a, in a mansion or whatever, shut off from the world. He, he walks up and he, he's driving a nice car because being a Derek the Dominus, he got paid. Right. And Clapton's like, hey, that's a really nice car. How'd you get that? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, obviously his manager was not letting him have his money. Right. Yeah, because they, they were deathly afraid that he would have he spent himself to death, you know, either through an overdose or, but his whole entire life, he never really have, was given money to spend. Yeah. Until like at the very end of his career when he started to finally take control of his own of his own operations. But so, that he was well into his fifties when he did that. So he he he, get, he goes away. He does go to rehab. He gets himself clean and he he comes back and you know he's he he has some release. It's not super successful, but in 1985 he comes out and he he has a song. It's called Forever Man. You know, Clapton was always big. You know, even when he wasn't like so necessarily charting, everybody, you know, he was, you know, people were always at someone wrote on the wall one time, Clapton is God. And yeah, that was, he, he always, he didn't like the pressure because people made more of a big deal out of what he thought he deserved. Right. But, you know, he came back, you know, he, he then parlays this into a spot at Live Aid. He, yeah. he, he changes his look. He definitely has kind of a, Almost a, a Don Johnson kind of look about him at yeah. this stage of his career. He has the beard really trimmed short. He, he's wearing stylish clothes. He's he's got a very '80s trendy haircut. Got the '80s haircut. He's he's wearing the like kind of like the oversized sport jacket. Yep. He's got kind of the uh, sleeves bag, rolled up, the baggy slacks. Yeah. He's looking good. Very bugle boy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, actually, this this was a song, and then shortly after this song was when he did the one off the soundtrack for The Color of Money. Yeah, it was an excellent. And album. I think it ended up winning the Academy Award for Best Song. It, uh, it's in the way that you use it yeah. was the song. Yep, yep, that's the song. And that sort of jump-started his career again. He comes out with another big album, I think in 1988-89, which has the song Pretending on it, and that's great. That's a good album. And there was another song off of this album, that I, I was always surprised it wasn't a bigger hit. He played it at Live Aid, and it's called She's Waiting. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I, I, I still go back and watch that Live Aid performance just for that song. Okay. Yeah, that was a good choice. But, you know, Clapton, he takes it here, you know, and, and this is this is Clapton back. You know, this is out of, you know, the, the, the drug haze that you know, disappears in the 70s. He's back, you know, obviously in the 90s. 
He goes on to bigger success when he does the acoustic set on MTV. Tears in Heaven is a big hit for him. But it kind of started with Forever Man. Yeah, and, and I can't say as, as somebody who's followed Clapton over the years, you might have to go to the original version of Layla to hear him play this fast. No, usually mm-hmm. it's it's a little it's it's slower. Even even his days in Cream is, dun 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 dun, mm-hmm. dun dun. You know, it's just not as fast as this song. It's is. kind of a ripping guitar solo. Yeah, I mean he he's he's really cranking it out here, much like the Layla song yeah. from Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah, I, I I I like this period. And Phil Collins is the he's playing drums mm-hmm. and he's the producer. Yeah, and maybe that's part of it because it kind of has that mid '80s Phil Collins sound. Yeah, well... Because Phil Collins was in everything. He was everywhere in the 1980s. All right, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to close it out uh, with my my final artist that, I mean, this is one I don't... People might argue with me, Scott, whether this was a comeback or not. Because they will say this band never left, they were never commercial, this was just the the career arc going up. But I'm going to have... And then we'll start here and play the song. And I think a lot of people recognize this from 1970. This is The Grateful Dead and Truckin'. Truckin', got my chips cashed in Keep truckin', like the doodah man Together, all less in line Just keep truckin' And for me, that's kind of the heyday, at least growing up, when I thought of the Grateful Dead. It was the early, late 60s, early 70s. Okay, I mean, I knew who the Grateful Dead was. Couldn't have named a single song up until the next one that you're probably going to play. Right, yeah, yeah. So I'm, you know, being a little bit older, I was I was watching television shows where they would appear. Okay. I mean, they they would be on. I mean, I, maybe they were never on Saturday Night Live, but they would have been on a show like Saturday Night Live. I was aware of them. You know, they, I would. You were you were aware of, of the term deadheads. Yeah. You'd see them around. You'd see yeah. people wearing their their tie dye shirts, and they identified as deadheads. The yeah. bumper stickers. The yep. Don Henley song yep. saw a deadhead sticker on the Cadillac. Yep. Yep. A little voice inside my head said, "Don't look back." You can yeah. never look back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of goes to the mentality that we had talked about. You know, it, it literally took a band to like jump in front of you with a new song for you to go back and understand what they were all about years ago. Right. So the Grateful Dead. For me, I didn't really necessarily know their songs a lot, but I knew them as a touring act. Yeah. Because it was kind of a touring circus. And you would always, uh, back then, you know, the newspapers or publications would print out, like, who was the top grossing mm-hmm. concert of mm-hmm. 1980, whatever. Yes. And The Grateful Dead was always in the top three. I remember watching a special on Prism, for you know, those of you who don't know, that was the kind of our, our version of HBO in the, you know, the Philadelphia, Lancaster area that we would get. And they did a a segment on the largest grossing bands to ever play the Spectrum, the arena that used to be in Philadelphia. And it was hands down The Grateful Dead. Yeah. Yeah, was that Jim Barniak's sports scrapbook? It was Jim Barniak's okay. sports scrapbook, yeah. 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 Jim Barniak, who I guess he owned Prism, I don't know, yeah. but he was everywhere. But you know, you know, he, he would. They were up there with acts like Billy Joel, who was notorious for selling out the Spectrum, yeah. and so they were an act. But I think, you know, kind of post the you know the '60s, the hippie period, they their songs weren't necessarily going to get 
the rele- their new releases weren't going to get a lot of airplay. You were still going to hear trucking. Right. You would still hear it on Starview 92, you know, the rock station every once in a while. But you weren't necessarily aware of the dead. You didn't necessarily know who the members were. I think the only time I ever heard trucking on the radio was probably on Pierre Robert. Okay. On, on 93.3 okay. WMMR. But you, but you would hear it occasionally. But it seemed like, eh, you know, their time was gone. They were a bit older. And then in 1987, they released the surprise hit that really kind of brought them to the consciousness of Gen Xers. Yeah. I mean, they became cool. They did. To somebody my age. And again, a great music video to help promote mm-hmm. the song. And suddenly you knew who Jerry Garcia was. Yeah. Like I said a little while ago, you didn't necessarily know the names of the people in the band, but you did. And especially Jerry. Yeah, and, and the whole concept of the, of the video, and of course the song's A Touch of Grey, but it's very cool in the beginning because they're, they're using skeletons to play the, they're the band, but they're skeletons. Right. And then at the very end, they, they go back to being normal people. But it's just kind of a funny take on a, on a theme there that they're basically, I guess they're not dead yet. They're dead heads, but um, so they're not, they're not quite ready to go into the grave just yet. Yeah, and, you know, it, they probably were at the time younger than what we are now. Or, I'm sure, yeah. You know, and, and they, but the whole thing was here are these old guys with their touch of gray and they're up there and they're, uh, yeah, you know, playing along. But, you know, the only names that I would have known, and I remember there was another song that came out with, uh, and uh, Bob Weir sang that one, they held in a bucket, the yeah. least I'm enjoying the ride. Yeah. So they had two. So it wasn't just this song, but this is the one that still kind of stands out there. And this is the one that really charted. And I remember suddenly, it went from being uh, boomers going to the dead concerts and being a bunch of deadheads and following them around, but all of a sudden Gen Xer started doing it. Yeah, you, you opened yourself up to an entirely new group of ticket buyers. Right. And But I don't know if they were necessarily looking for that, per se, but it was certainly a well-crafted song for the era in which it was released. But somebody thought they could make money off of this sure because this was packaged well absolutely you know this was a a relatively tight song um you know it's it's probably a five minute plus song of course you don't have to play the whole thing right you know on the radio or on mtv but you know it's 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 got such a very creative very slickly uh, packaged video and the dead for the first time since the uh, you know early 70s are cool again yeah and and they Remember, I had said that for much of the 80s that they were usually one of the top three touring acts of the year because they never stopped. They right. would constantly tour. You know, the song comes out and they shoot right to number one almost immediately. Yeah. So, you're right because they they increased their Deadpool or their Deadhead uh, pool of ticket buyers even more. Yeah. And, you know, for the first time, I actually would listen to a, a Grateful Dead song, which oh, sure. I, I was never really This came on before. the other day on Sirius XM, and I, I'll let it play all the way through. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think this is one of the of the, the landmark songs of the Gen X era, where it's just going to get played. You know, you had talked about in another episode, it's, you're kind of a, it's sad that, you know, I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett gets played 
every retrospective weekend because you know you get tired of it. Well, this is another one that's always going to get played. That is true. Yeah, um, actually, but, this might be on your list. But this is one that I don't necessarily get tired of, though. That, that I think that's probably the biggest difference. Yeah. Is it, it? It's still. I don't know. So it's a, it's, a, it's a well done song and. It's something that I can listen to multiple times. Right. So, anyways, that ends my list. Uh, for this long marathon uh, <laughs> session that we've had here, that you know, it, you know, during one of our breaks, I was I was showing Scott my list. It's like you know another five times more than what I even put sure. out there. So, uh, but I think both of us. I'm glad that we took different points of view on this. And, you know, we're able to highlight some artists that, like, uh, Aaron Neville jumps out to my mind, right. you know, from, from your list that I haven't thought about for a while. Right. And it's kind of nice to have that, you know, happen. Yeah. And and for you, uh, you know, you had a lot of good ones, a lot of great ones on the on the list. Um, the one that jumps out to me is Aerosmith. Like, why didn't I think about oh, Aerosmith? Okay. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, that, to me, that, that was almost like a no-brainer. And I can't believe I, I whiffed on that one. So... As we said before earlier in this episode, that you take when somebody jumps, you know, puts out new music, it, like during that time, like say for example, uh, Grateful Dead or even Aerosmith, uh, you know, you're kind of familiar with them on the on the back end, but by having them come out with n- new music at the time, it really caused you to go back and look or listen to some of their. Uh, songs that they were, I guess, would be considered in their heyday. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Righteous Brothers would be a good example of that. And there's there's a ton of them where where you you kind of re-experience the Beatles for me when they when Free as a Bird came out in that documentary. Sure, that's that's what we kicked the show off with. Whereas they, you know, I really got into reading about the Beatles after that documentary and those songs came out. I was like, I I got to figure out why these why people are making such a big deal about this band. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I did because it opened me up to you know the best the best group of all time. So what was interesting with that is uh, you know I watch these interviews with artists from our era mm-hmm. you know, that we really looked up to and enjoy their music, and invariably they get the question, "What made you want to be a musician?" And I think 99 percent of them say, "Oh, I saw the Beatles playing Ed Sullivan." Yep, exactly. You know, they were of that age and they were a kid, and they it's like, "I want to do that. That's what I want to be." Yeah. I saw CC Deville play. <laughs> we loved you, CC. Don't yeah, don't take it the wrong way. I was a big CC fan. I yeah. still like CC. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. That was that was fun. Um, definitely like going back and and bringing back some of the. As I call them the comeback kids, comeback singers, musicians of of all time in music, and that was that was a good one. And I'm sure those of you who are listening are thinking of other names. And, and like like I was telling you that, you know, I had this huge list. There there. Are th- people that I thought of and but I think it's a it's a fun exercise to kind of see you know artists that have some staying power mm-hmm. that have some some fortitude and maybe for whatever reason a record executive like uh, Clyde Davis gets behind you I yeah mean, what what caused that to happen who knows but but sometimes it's bottle lightning sometimes it's luck sometimes it's just hard work and willing to stick it out yeah absolutely you know Sometimes people get cast aside. Sometimes people fall on hard times, and sometimes the the public turns their back on them. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, no, thanks, Sean. That was that was fun. All right. So we're we're gonna go uh, next time. We're gonna have episode number twenty seven, which is gonna be your episode, Scott. So what do you have in store for number us? Number twenty seven. Uh, you know, we haven't. I, I thought 
it might be something that would be would be good if we pulled it out every couple of months. And our most successful episode so far was the name that tune episode. Okay. So I thought, why don't we bring back name that tune? So would you like me to give you the year or do you want to wait and find out? Um, give me the year. Okay. I'll give you the year. It's 1989. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. So we're going to do name that tune from 1989 and I won't give you the, the date just yet. Yeah, that's fine. But, um, and, and try and stay in your wheelhouse, you know, stay in your lane, but, uh, we'll bring back name that name, that tune from the billboard top 100 from 1989. Oh, so good. all right. Uh, I look forward to that. Should be, should be a good one. Should be a lot of fun. We'll, we'll run down the top 40 and we'll uh, do it like we did a few months ago. That was, has so far been our best received as we have now cleared over 2000 views There you go for, uh, for the first time. And, just again, we want to thank everybody for for tuning into Gen X Playback. We uh, it couldn't happen without uh, listener listeners like you, including uh, you know our friends in Buffalo, New York. And That's right. We want to we want to say thanks to everybody for for tuning into uh, the Gen X Playback show. And just from one week to the next, I, I kind of sit back and I'm sort of amazed by all the viewership. Yeah, yeah. So am I. So continue to spread the word. You know, it's it's word of mouth that seemingly is making us grow. And uh, tell your friends and uh, subscribe, rate us, you know, that good stuff. And uh, let's continue to, uh, as I say, uh, grow our little family here. So once again, if you want to view our playlist, you can go on to Spotify. And for my playlist, you want to type in uh, the Comeback Kids, and you'll get uh, you'll get Scott's playlist. Sean will. I'm going to call. I'm, I'm going to name it. Uh, we'll, we'll, it's going to be called Comeback Song. It's going to be Gen X Comeback Songs. Okay. All right. Thanks again for tuning in to the Gen X Playback Show. We are your favorite show of the '70s, '80s, and '90s. Uh, we are the Brothers High. I'm Scott, and I'm Sean, and we will talk to you next time. See ya.